Right now I'm in a town called Kismayu. It is the southernmost part of Somalia, the province bordering Kenya. And it's a hot spot for a drought that could get a lot worse in the next few months. Idrisdar works to provide clean water to his fellow Somalis. It's been tough this year. It is dry, very dry. This area along the coast, it has not rained for the last three seasons. It's like nothing he's ever seen before. I've never seen giraffes and gazelles and waddocks entering households to look for water and to look for, for something to eat. It happened this year. I'm 60 years old. I've never seen it happen. And he's putting out a warning. This year, Somalia could see famine again. But is there enough time to do something about it? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. You may not know this, but camels are pretty important in Somalia. Camels are important. They are very important for milk production and for meat and for for export. Somalia has more camels than any other country in the world. And the annual camel exports are valued at a quarter of a billion dollars. This area is semi-arid. That means uh, most times it is dry. And if you know anything about camels you probably know they do well in dry climates. So they typically fare well in Somalia's weather. They are hardy, they are tough, they are not killed by droughts easily. But after three seasons without rain, even the camels are suffering. The camels have migrated to areas where there are light showers in other parts of Somalia. Those with camels migrated out, or those who, who reared purely cattle and have lost their stock. Cattle are dying. I know somebody who owned 300 cows, and when we visited him in November, he only had 10. And the 10 were dying. And by the time we, we, we decided to move him to a place called Doble, there was nothing left. From 300 cows to zero in less than two months. The whole of the coastal region is, is saline. Meaning salt water from the ocean has seeped into the water table, making wells unusable. If it doesn't rain, then there's no pasture and there's no water. Not good for human and the animal consumption. People here depend on rain harvested water and the underground tanks that get filled up during the rain. You have to track the water. On a rare rainy day in the north of the country, far from where Edros is, two Somali women show their rain gutters collecting water in a YouTube video. I'll show you how the roof I collect the water from the roof. And then... I'll show you where it comes out. If there's no rain, then those things don't get filled up. That means there will be no pasture for animals and there will be no water for the cattle and sheep and goats. And donkeys. And people depend on donkeys as means of transport to carry their households, to draw water, to sell firewood, and to get food from the market. Donkeys have died because of the drought. We have seen in instances where people lost their cattle and then lost their means of transport, which is the donkey. If people can't get to the towns, they can't get help. Though what's happening now is exceptional, Idris says he's seen drought before, back in 2011. It was devastating. People are walking from central Somalia to Kenya, 90 kilometers into Kenya, 
200 kilometers stretch, 300 kilometers stretch. And in process, people are burying their dead. We are shouting so that that does not happen again. We need to reach those people before they start dying. Nizar Majid researches climate in Somalia, and he agrees. He recently penned an op-ed for Al Jazeera trying to alert the world that Somalia, a country that's been at the top of the Global Hunger Index for years, is now at risk of an all-out famine again. We've got a kind of multi-seasonal, multi-year drought in the making. Poor rains mean that harvests have been poor, global food prices are rising. And on top of that, we have complicated political conditions, COVID pandemic with less aid money around. Nizar says his work in Somalia started more than 20 years ago. I happened to get my first significant job in Somalia and I thoroughly enjoyed it. (laughs) I made lots of friends amongst my Somali colleagues and found it a fascinating place. A fascinating place with big problems. He started looking at drought, food security, famine. And then more recently, I did the work on the famine in 2011 through Tufts University. The work culminated with a book he co-authored titled Famine in Somalia. Somalis and non-Somalis worked on that study together. So at this point, Nisar seen what a famine in Somalia looks like. It's not good. And climate change is part of it, he says. Somalia is on the front line of climate change. Definitely, Somalia is on the front line. However, that is only one factor. And I think it sometimes can be a bit dangerous just to overly focus on drought or on climate change when ultimately famine, which means that a lot of people are dying in relation to the population that you're looking at, is there are always man-made factors. You can't stop a drought, but you can do quite a lot to assist people and to stop a drought turning into a famine and to stop people suffering and dying in the end. And those are more political issues. Can you break down what this actually means on a day-to-day level for people? Well, yeah, what it means on a daily basis is that people are struggling to find water for themselves and for their animals or paying more for the water that they can get hold of. Their uh, reserves of food are depleted. The quality of their animals is depleted, meaning that they don't get good quantities of milk for them. The value of their animals, if they want to sell them, has gone down. That in turn, food prices are higher than they would normally be. So your income has gone down and the cost of food and water has gone up. And you therefore start to look for alternatives to those sources by looking for other forms of assistance. It may be through your family networks, those people that have access to extended family outside of Somalia, in Kenya or in America or the UK, can start to turn to those relatives. Guhad Adan, one of Nisar's Somali colleagues, says there's a term for it. There is something we call people to cry to. Guhad lives in Kenya now. He's worked in humanitarian aid for years and worked with Nisar on the book and recent op-ed. When people start calling you for assistance, who normally don't call you when they're in good situation? That is how we raise what is happening. So-and-so has called, so-and-so has called, so-and-so has called. There must be something happening. But this isn't just research. It's become part of his life. 
my sister called me and told me so and so is having this problem so and so is this having problem and then i had to i had to go to my account and withdraw money and then send to people almost 20 of them actually these are people from my clan that money will help for a short time it's a short time help and uh, if uh, if i do this month maybe and they don't get the other, the next month then that is again another problem so now there's a big problem a drought dying animals hungry out of work people lots of phone calls asking for help and worse according to samira gaid the former head of security in somalia children dying we have already witnessed children suffering from malnutrition, loss of lives due to starvation. Over 150,000 people have already left their homes in search of water. So when could this become a famine, officially? Technically, a famine is declared when one in five households experience starvation, destitution, and death. By that time, people are already dying of hunger. It's beyond crisis or emergency. It's designated as an extremely critical catastrophe. I asked Nisar if that was something he could predict and the world could prevent. Is there a time that you expect a famine might actually be declared? A famine might hit. We're in a famine. Um, well, defining a famine becomes quite a technical process and it's difficult to predict exactly we expect the worst time to be in march april that's that the end of the long dry season and beginning of the next rainy season so that's one critical point and then from any time onwards in uh, 2011 the famine was declared in july and that was considered already late so if there is to be a famine then it would in no likelihood it will be before that so let's talk about what the international community is doing the united states which is the largest donor of aid to somalia gave over 400 million dollars last year and the UN allocated an additional 17 million because of the drought. Of course, that's not everything, but is that even enough? Yeah, well, the issue with money is that you have to think about it in different ways. The amount of money that you quoted from the US is a significant amount of money, but that's being used on an annual basis. And we're talking about a worsening situation at the moment. And I understand that possibly that figure will be reduced next year due to competing demands around the world. Uh, and that's the case with other countries as well, like the UK that has reduced its aid budget. You've got a timing issue. And so actually we're already late in terms of scaling up our response. And then you've got a, another question about how well are you using the resources that are available and that's a very interesting one because the people that have died in the two major famines in Somalia in 92 and in 2011 come particularly from certain uh, population groups certain identity groups and it's become very difficult to reach those groups because they're in rural areas and they're in areas under the control of al-shabaab so that again becomes a complicated political question Al-Shabaab is an armed group connected to Al-Qaeda that's held control of much of the rural areas of South and Central Somalia, where the drought is most severe. So this is not the first time that famine has hit Somalia. During the civil war, there was a famine in the 1990s. 
thousands of Somalis died. It is clear that the scale of the famine there is even worse than we thought. People were staying in their huts and dying. Now that food is arriving, people who are on the verge of starvation are coming out. Children. The U.S. intervened in a massive military operation in 1992. Tensions grew between the U.S. and a Somali warlord. And in July of 93, U.S. forces attacked a political meeting in Mogadishu, killing more than 50 Somalis. It's known by many as Bloody Monday, and it's been described as a war crime. Just a few months later, it ended with this. Five Black Hawk helicopters were shot over the Somali capital. The pivotal 17-hour battle left 18 American soldiers dead. Some were dragged through the streets. More than 80 troops were wounded. After that, the U.S. was hesitant about getting involved in Somalia again. Here's President Bill Clinton. These tragic events raise hard questions about our effort in Somalia. Why are we still there? What are we trying to accomplish? How did a humanitarian mission turn violent? And when will our people come home? President Clinton ordered the U.S. Rangers home, and the U.S. Embassy in Somalia was closed for almost three decades. Then there was the famine in 2011, and a new security problem for the Somali government and aid groups, Al-Shabaab. We asked a local cameraman to film for us in territory controlled by the militant Islamist group, Al-Shabaab. Desperate families have gathered here in huge numbers, hoping to find food. That famine killed 10% of Somalia's youngest children under the age of five, along with a quarter million people overall. There were strict international regulations on giving out food. In an effort to deprive Al-Shabaab of funding, regulations that persist even in the midst of a famine. This is what the regional director for the World Food Programme told Al Jazeera at the time. It's a catastrophe there, and there's no other way of, of describing it. It's the worst situation that we face anywhere. Security keeps seeming to hamper the distribution of aid. Is this what we're seeing happen again? Uh, we are, and we're seeing it, though, in slightly different ways than in 1992 or in 2011. In 2011, for example, there was an active conflict between Al-Shabaab and the government and its international allies. The government itself wasn't really formed at that stage, the Somalia government. It was only recognised in 2012. And, and since 2011-12, then, there's been a certain degree of stability, a, a kind of standoff, if you want, between Al-Shabaab and the government and its international supporters. But that's also meant that Al-Shabaab holds a much larger proportion of the territory than the government itself, but the majority of aid resources go into the urban areas that are largely held by the government and allies. So in terms of security, it's less about active conflict as it was in 2011 and in 1992. It's more about working in areas outside of government control and the difficulties and the lack of progress that has been made in working in areas that are under Al-Shabaab influence. Can you elucidate what some of those challenges might be in working in those areas outside of government control? Yeah, so Al-Shabaab is a, for many people, a legitimate local authority, um, and it uh, charges 
taxes in the areas in different ways for trade that passes through. And so there is no agreement on organisations being uh, able to pay those taxes to Al-Shabaab because this falls into counter-terrorism legislation. And the, the kind of reputational threat organisations like the UN and NGOs face because their resources would be potentially going into the hands of terrorists as characterised by different governments. We spoke with a representative from Oxfam, a charity fighting poverty, about the challenges they're facing now. My name is uh, Florence Mangwende. I'm uh, working with Oxfam Novi based in Hagesa. So we recently also visited some of the affected areas. For reference... It would take several days to drive from Hargeisa to Jubaland, which is in southern Somalia, the heart of the drought. But now, the route is virtually impassable because of checkpoints placed by al-Shabaab and militias. We mainly support in the rural areas because this is where we see quite a number of challenges, especially when it comes to access uh, to water. The issues around the number of meals that households are consuming per day have really deteriorated because families are barely able to meet their food needs per day. And Oxfam is worried, she says. We are really concerned. The funding to this humanitarian crisis has been very low. And that means that there's quite a lot of pressure on the limited resources. So we are actually afraid to have the, a repeat of 2011. And so that's why we are urging humanitarian donors to act swiftly and to intervene. And they're figuring out new ways to get aid to those who need it. The way we provide food right now is through unconditional cash transfers. New ways that involve less bureaucracy. We also get their phone numbers, which is normally registered in their names. Once we have this kind of information, it helps us to know that we're directing our aid to the right people. And we work with telecoms uh, companies in Somalia, and they're the ones who help us in making sure that this money goes directly to the phones of the people that we have registered. But as far as helping people in areas controlled by al-Shabaab... In the areas where we have al-Shabaab in control, this is where we would see very huge challenges. As Oxfam, we have not really been in some of those heated areas. We have not really uh, encountered such challenges. And things are somewhat tense with the central government of Somalia too. Somalia's president says the prime minister is suspected of corruption and is now suspended. President Mohamed Abdullahi Farmajo's four-year term expired on Monday, but he's still in office. I asked Nisar if national politics are making things harder. What about the internal politics in Somalia? I'm thinking postponed elections and uncertain political situation. How does that affect getting aid to the people who need it right now? So for several years now, there has been deep tensions between the federal government and some of the regional governments around the way that the elections are to be held. It's very obvious that international donors have been discouraged and disappointed by what they see taking place around the elections. Uh, there's a lot of money changing hands. That money, you can argue, is money that could be used to support local populations. And there is a lot of focus uh, for the political elite on these elections. The drought is also hitting Kenya and Ethiopia. There is a deadly conflict in Ethiopia. Mm. 
of course, there's also the pandemic. So how do all of these factors affect the aid and the situation that we're seeing in Somalia? So certainly the war in Ethiopia, the political situation in Ethiopia is very complicated and is, a again, a distraction both in terms of attention and in terms of resources. The global pandemic, of course, has seen huge amounts of public resources mobilised to support national or local populations in those countries. So the net effect of all of this is that there's less attention on Somalia and there are less resources available on Somalia. And actually, that was really the driving force for us um, approaching Al Jazeera and writing this op-ed is because there was a recent famine and there wasn't the attention that we felt was necessary on Somalia because of these other distractions. As you mentioned, oftentimes the declaration of a famine comes way too late to do anything about it. And we are already in the midst of it at that point. So what happens if the aid doesn't get there? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head, actually. Somalia will probably appear more and more in the international news on your and other outlets and stations with unpleasant and traumatic images of skeletal women and children. That's what we saw in 2011, and it was too late, and that resulted in an additional mobilisation of resources and in a scaled-up response, but... It's too late by then for far too many people, and that's why there has to be action as soon as possible. We're not there yet, but Florence McGuende with Oxfam says she's starting to hear reports that even the camels are dying. Quite a number of households have now started recording losses when it comes to, to camels, where whenever there is lack of water, then it's quite difficult. And that's the take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Ruby Zaman, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilvey, Nagin Auliai, and me, Malika Bilal. Our story editor is Tom Fenton. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Aya Al-Milek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is executive producer. For more stories from The Take, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and let us know what you think. We're at AJ The Take. We'll be back.